been a pastor for a long time, and so you can imagine that I've spent a great amount of my weeks in what you might refer to as worship planning meetings. Because you see, what happens when you come on an hour on a Sunday doesn't happen automatically, right? I mean, somebody's got to pull the charts for the band, somebody's got to decide what songs that we're singing, somebody's got to decide everything with lights and sounds and um, who's offering the prayer and you know, who's praying for Cody while he's praying, because that always worries us when we invite Cody to pray. <laughs> and so all the different things of what happens in the worship planning, so we're always looking to the weeks to come, and Sunday comes every week, and you got to keep planning, and most of that time is dictated by logistics and by details and by all kinds of different coordination. And then you can also imagine that when we get in those meetings, we can't help but, and we ought to, evaluate what happened the week before. How did it go? You have these very same meetings when you get to your car with your spouse, and you get in it, and you close the door, and you're like, why on earth did they pick that song? Why did they let the choir come into my rock and roll church? Or, who does that pastor think he is? You have these evaluation meetings, we have these evaluation meetings, and we have our own criteria about, you know, how things actually went. I remember that as a pastor, I had been doing this for a while, when all of a sudden I read a book by a friend and a colleague who was the pastor at the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California, wrote a book called The Dangerous Act of Worship. And in that book, he says that we have some perceived dangers of whether or not worship went well. Was it relevant? Did it meet your expectations or your preferences? Is it popular? Do, do people come? Is there a crowd? And does it make you comfortable? And honestly, when we're doing an evaluation, sometimes 99% of the conversations that I have with you about worship center on these four different things. But what Laberton talks about in the book is those are not the real dangers. The real dangers of worship are these four things. A worship that lies to God. A worship that lies about God. A worship that doesn't change us and a worship that doesn't change the world. These are the questions we ought to be asking ourselves as we evaluate our worship. And today I'm gonna to get a little nosy and tell you about a guy who wants to poke his kind of head into our sanctuary and look around and see what's going on in our worship lives. And his name is Amos, and I warn you, he's not the nicest of guys. And so if you will, turn with me to the book of Amos. We're going to start reading in the fifth chapter. Let me help you get to the book of Amos. If you open your Bible in the middle, more than likely you're going to hit the kind of the book of Psalms, the very long book that is the prayer book of the Bible. If you keep going to the right, you will eventually get to the section that is the prophets. And the major prophets are the ones that had the big book deals, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you get to the minor prophets that are not as well known. And there's three of them, Hosea, Joel, and Amos, 
that are kind of clustered together. And Amos is only nine chapters long, and so sometimes he's a little hard to find. And this is some of the, over the next couple of months, this is some of the most unfamiliar and foreign parts of the Bible to us. And so I love hearing the flipping of the pages as you turn to Amos chapter 5. That is the sound of angels' wings in church as you find your place. And let me remind you of what we're doing in this year. We are on a quest together. We're exploring God's story together. We're, we have a dream for a Bible in every hand and God's story in every heart. And so we've been walking through the whole story of the word by talking about promise and freedom and home and how God is building a kingdom. And then what do we do when that kingdom seems to be falling apart? That's what we're experiencing with God's people throughout the month of May. And so let me tell you a little bit about the prophet of Amos before we start reading. There's only a couple of things we can glean from his LinkedIn profile. The first thing we know about Amos is that he is a fig tree farmer. And don't think as fig trees as any old tree in Israel that bears fruit. Remember, Israel in the promised land was said to be a land that was flowing with milk and what? Honey. The honey that is spoken of in the book of Deuteronomy, of it being that type of land in the book of Numbers, is not actually the honey from bees. It is the honey from figs. And so fig trees become kind of the national symbol of God's promises for his people in Israel. So when Jesus is walking along the road one day and he curses a fig tree and it dies, this is not just some random tree that Jesus has chosen. He is making and doing some performance art with regards to the people and their faithfulness. So the first thing we know about Amos is that he's a fig tree farmer. The second thing we know about Amos is that he is a shepherd. A shepherd is somebody who takes on the lowliest, the dirtiest, the least prestigious job. We recall that King David got his start as the runt of the litter of his family and he had to tend the flocks and that David goes from being a shepherd to being a shepherd king. The other thing we know about Amos is where he lived and when he lived. This is where he lived. He lived somewhere at the intersection of the green and the orange on this map. This is a depiction of the divided kingdom. 150 years before Amos, right after the time of Solomon, there was a king by the name of Rehoboam who was Solomon's son. And Jeroboam split the north off from Rehoboam, forming Judah and Israel. Now, one of the things that we're going to discover is that in the book of Amos, it's going to talk about King Jeroboam. This is not Jeroboam the first, this is Jeroboam the second, 150 years later. Not a direct descendant in that regards but whoever was naming that king. So what Amos does is this. Amos is living along the border towns, and if we were going to put this in context of like an American history, he goes to the other side of the Mason-Dixon line during the time of civil war in order to deliver a message. And in doing so, he goes in and he has a really fast and hot start. Because the book of Amos is a collection of his, his sermons, his poems, and his visions. And when he gets there, 
he starts out by warnings or accusations or prophecies of judgment against all of the nations that surround Israel. So in all of these messages with Gaza and Judah and Edom and Moab and Ammon and Tyre and Damascus, he has all kinds of pointed words for them. And as he's making his way around Israel and he's sharing these messages, people are like, yeah, those people are horrible. Yeah, those people are terrible. Yeah, we don't like those people. We like Amos. And then all of a sudden he trains his sights in on them. And after two chapters, spends the rest of the book of Amos letting them have it. They don't like this part as much. And in chapter 5, to me, this is the heart of his message. Starting in the fourth verse. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and what? Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. Just as a little pause, these names right here are Old Testament famous names of important and famous things that happened in the Old Testament that now have gotten co-opted by the worship of putting up idols and uh, putting up altars to other gods. For Gilgal will surely go down into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and what? Live. Or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. What you're going to see in the book of Amos is the pairing together over and over again of justice and righteousness, and justice and righteousness. We're going to talk about that at length later. And he who made... Pleiades and Orion, those are two constellations up in the nighttime sky, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on the grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice and the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil." Seek good and not evil that you may what? Live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you. Just as you say that he is. The presenting problem that Amos brings to the people is that they are dying. Not just the natural death of one person, but that their community, their faith is dying. And we see a glimpse of this image in the passage that we read today, but that we will see more and more in the rest of the book. The primary image of the death and the decay that Amos describes is that everything is going to be in ruins. Everything that you see that is alive and flourishing now will turn into a pile of rubble. And so what Amos is bringing to the people in the message, and you see this in the repetition and the call and response of how I had you engage with the scripture, is that this is a matter of life and death. 
that this is the kind of thing where he is pointing out in two different ways that they need to seek the Lord and live and that they need to seek the good and live. And in order to be able to understand those two things of seeking the Lord and live and seeking the good and live, if you understand the difference between these two things in terms of their opposites, one of the things that you will understand is that the primary kind of struggle is that they're seeking all kinds of gods, they're just not seeking the Lord. And the other kind of aspect of the struggle that he's trying to address is that they've turned good into evil and evil into good, and because of these two things, that they're not pursuing God, and that they've gotten good and evil confused, it's that they're dying. And their community is crumbling into ruins all around them. One of the ways to give you some context for how they've gotten good and evil mixed up and that things are not going well. Did you hear all of the different aspects of what they were talking about in terms of economics in this passage? Particularly with regards to the poor. How corrupt it's gotten that there are bribes and there are unrealistic taxes and that there's all kinds of different things that are happening in terms of their treatment of the poor. You need to understand that in context that basically the north and the south in the time of Israel split in the kingdom over the issue of slavery. That God's people were in Egypt and of no fault in their own, they're conscripted into slavery into Egypt. And that through a great price, God heard their prayers and rescued them. And that they were able to be rescued and brought and to be given into a home that they might be forgiven and that they might be freed. And as God's people lived there... They had all kinds of safeguards on how to protect the people of that society. And over time, they started letting their guard down on those things. And what happened during the time of Solomon, even though he accomplished incredible and great architectural feats and national treasures, the means by which he did so was conscripted labor. In other words, he enslaved his own people in order to accomplish his goals. Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, continues that time of slavery and makes it worse. Jeroboam in the north says, we're not going to do that anymore. So the north and the south split over the issue of slavery, but the north drifts into idolatry, and here's the catch. After 150 years with Jeroboam II, now the north is doing the very same thing to its people that it blamed the south in doing. And so they had enslaved their own, and God's people are now once again in slavery, this time by themselves. And so what the prophet Jeremiah says is that what we need is both justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. These are the two twin engines if their community is going to have any hope of being alive. And I know that the minute I say the word justice, that this is a word that has become so politicized in today's day, I'm going to need to explain to you what I think the Bible means by that. Let me share with you in the sense of that justice is a Hebrew term 
There's 200 different times that this word appears in the Old Testament. You can't steer around this word in the Old Testament. Justice is the word mishpat, which is, in the rich converser, non-Webster, biblical understanding of this, is fairness exhibited through the care of the vulnerable. Fairness exhibited through the care of the vulnerable. And so just as the word evangelical has now been morphed instead of meeting in its biblical context of, hey, this is a person who shares the good news of Jesus Christ, euangelion, that's what that word originally means. Now it has a politicized meaning. The same thing is true with justice. But the Bible has a deep and grounded understanding of this fairness and how we are to care for the vulnerable, typically lifted up as the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. And what the Bible regularly does is says how you treat the, typically these four different types of people tells you whether or not you are living out of a sense of God's understanding of justice. And so let me illustrate what this might mean for you. So there's a guy by the name of Gary Haugen who's the founder and president of the International Justice Mission. And in his book, The Locust Effect, Jerry, uh, Gary talks about uh, a, a truck that he remembers his grandfather having on kind of like the back 40 near the farm on a raspberry farm that they had. And this truck was worn down and it was beaten up. And, and if you were to ask his grandfather, if you were like, hey, do you have a truck? His grandfather would say, of course I have a truck. And if you asked his grandfather to describe the different things that the truck has, he would say, yeah, the truck has headlights, the truck has an engine, the truck has an axle, it has wheels, it has a steering wheel, all these different kinds of things. But then if you ask the natural follow-up question to his grandfather, but does it work? His grandfather would laugh and say, no, it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't carry produce anymore. It doesn't run anymore. In fact, if anything, you probably want to stay away from this truck because you're more likely to get bitten by a snake or a spider than you are any good out of it. Carrying that analogy, Gary says that as International Justice Mission does its work in particularly emerging countries around the world, you can go to those places and you can say, do they have police? Do they have fire? Do they have lawyers? Do they have courts? Do they have judges? Yes, they have all these things. And then you ask them the natural follow-up question in these countries, in these places. Yeah, but does it work? And they're going to laugh and they're going to say, no, it doesn't work. In the country of Guatemala, you only have for a reported case of sexual abuse, you only have a 6% case, 6% chance of that case getting to a verdict of guilty or innocent. In other words, for 94% of people with a reported case of sexual abuse, there is no justice. In the country of Guatemala, while we were driving around, I was amazed at the number of police that we saw. Our host said, yes, do you know what the difference is between the United States and Guatemala? In Guatemala, the cops are everywhere, but they're corrupt and they never do anything. In the United States, you never see the cops, but if they're there, they're going to do something. 
As an aside, my friends, lately I think we've been sliding more towards Guatemala than we would like to admit. In the country of Malawi, one of our other and our largest international investment that we have, there are one prosecutor for every 1.5 million citizens of the country. There is no justice for those people. It doesn't work. It doesn't run. And so justice is about that fairness and then righteousness, which is the Hebrew word that gets paired with justice all the time, tzedakah. It means a right, a good relationship with both God as well as other people. Let me see if I can give you an example of righteousness. I want to show you a picture of a woman by the name of Linda who drives the 54 bus in San Francisco up in Northern California. Being a bus driver is not the greatest of jobs. There's all kinds of complaints, there's traffic, and it doesn't pay very well. And yet Linda doesn't just drive the bus safely. She creates a loving and joy-filled community for all of her bus rides. And so when people get on her bus, she gets to know them and she calls her regulars by name. When there's the elderly woman who struggles to get her groceries on the bus, Linda stops, get out of her seat, and she helps them. When she knows one of the regulars is running a few moments late, she waits so that that person can get to their job on time. And when she greets you, not only as you're coming, but as she greets you as you're leaving and bids you farewell, do you know the way that she greets them? She says to all the people who exit, don't forget, I love you. When was the last time you got off the MARTA and someone said, I love you? <laughs> or let me rephrase, when was the last time you got off a of MARTA, someone said, I love you, and you weren't terrified? <laughs> when Pastor John Ortberg asked Linda, how does she create such a loving community in a job that most people can't stand? She said... Well, that's easy. I get up at 2 a.m. every day to pray to my God. And he asked her, what do you talk about? And she said, everything. God and I have a lot to talk about. That is an example of righteousness. Linda creates right relationship with God and with other people everywhere she goes. And so justice and righteousness go together. And they can't be separated from one another. And so here's the situation. Amos goes up north. He points out everything that's wrong with all of the other nations, but then sets his sight on Israel itself and says, you're dying because you're not seeking God and because you've gotten goodness and evil turned upside down. And the reason that you've got goodness and evil turned upside down is that you have forsaken both justice and righteousness. So as a result, every time they come to worship, Amos says this, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, says the Lord. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
Though you bring me choice of fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. I hate your worship, God says. Have you ever come to worship wondering whether or not God wants you to come? Have you ever wondered in coming to worship whether God wants to receive what, what you have to give? He is saying this because we're dying and we're not willing to do anything about it. We're not holding together justice and righteousness. And my friends, this is going to be difficult for me to share with you because I am about to step on some toes. On the political left, they want justice without righteousness. Their picture of what social justice is And they want to exclude the aspect of what it means to be good to God and to one another. Typically, on the right side of the political spectrum, they want righteousness, they want goodness, but they want to exclude justice. And the fastest way to grow a crowd in America today is to gather on a Sunday morning and to preach out of only one of these two different extremes. People are flocking to churches who are willing to enter into the echo chamber of conspiracy theories or their own failed and inadequate economic ideologies. And people are more willing to align with how they choose to vote and how they choose to see the political system and in doing so are forsaking this sacred and solemn book and all of the promises that come with it. You can do that. You can find a place that is going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. Just don't call it a church because it's not church because in a church we stand on the promises of God. We stand in the midst of the challenges that even Amos provides to us that says we will hold left and right, justice and goodness and righteousness, we will hold those things together and we will not divorce them. In this church, in this church, we are not driven by a political agenda, but by a dream to put a Bible in every hand and God's story in every heart. There are political implications to what we believe under God's word. But we will not put truth and falsehood on a level. We will not turn good and evil upside down. And as Annie Lamott says, the surest way that you know you've made God in your own image is that he hates all the same people that you do. So let me be clear, if that wasn't clear enough. Let me be clear. (laughs) That until justice and righteousness flows out of our communities of faith as naturally as waters who land on the top of a mountain rush down to lower levels. Until that happens, God is saying, I don't like that worship. Because that's not worship. It's hypocrisy. It's an agenda. It's not church. I give you my word that I'm going to try to hold all of this together in a time 
when everything, even in our churches, is saying, keep pulling it apart. I, I read the book and I see justice and righteousness and you can't separate them. We need both. We need to be able to care for the vulnerable and make it fair for them. And there's no way to create a system in which, as T.S. Eliot says, in which nobody has to be good. We need both. So how does Amos end it? In chapter 9, he says this. On that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And we rebuild it as it used to be. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. So Amos wanders above the borderlands to look at a community and say, you're dying and your life is turning into ruins. But it doesn't have to be this way. Remember the promise of a land that's flowing with milk and with honey. But in order for that to happen, things need to work properly. You need justice. And in addition to that, you need goodness, you need righteousness. Normally, when I end a sermon, I try to find an illustration that ties everything together. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to give you a summer homework assignment. Summer homework as assigned by the prophet Amos. So this is one of those moments I want you to pull out your phones or pull out a piece of paper and some notes. I'm going to put this up on the screen. And I'm just asking you to pray about this this summer because this is standing in the gap of where I think churches are abandoning their posts. How can justice, a care for the vulnerable, and righteousness, right relationship with God and goodness towards others, flow out of my life like a mighty river? What would it be like for us as a community to take some time this summer as we enter into the season of the prophets, what would it be like for us to just pray that for ourselves? And to draw our inspiration, not off of our primary media outlets, but off of his word. And to hold things in our society together that our society wants to split apart. And so in closing this message, let's, let's ask God to open our hearts and our minds to how we might be changed over the course of the summer.